everybody, Nick Ruffini here, episode 568 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And for most of you who saw my my email and my That's a Wrap message the other day, uh, I just didn't feel comfortable. I, st- I don't feel comfortable recording and releasing an interview episode as if it's business as usual over here at Drummer's Resource. And, and I think that everyone knows that right now there's a lot of there's a lot of craziness going on in the country, around the world, uh, and deservedly so. And there has to be some some radical changes that happen within this country, especially. And this podcast, uh, I, I don't talk about politics, I don't talk about religion, but I don't believe that this is a political issue. I believe that it's a, a human race issue. And we need to understand that that we are all human and we are all the same. And although we are may come from different backgrounds and things like that, at the end of the day, we're all human. And particularly the way that there's been systematic racism within the United States and around the world, uh, now that it is really, really coming to the forefront and, and everyone is joining together to fight for this, I just didn't. I didn't want to just release an episode and, and again, act like it was business as usual here. So Daniel Glass and I had a conversation about it and we, and we were talking about the influence that, that black drummers have had on music and the way that black artists have had on, or the influence that, that black artists have had on not only music, but American culture and American history. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And Daniel does a great job. He's obviously an author and a historian and does a great job on covering all of these topics anyway. He does this all the time. So it's definitely in his wheelhouse. So I'm deferring to him to really give give a history lesson here and really just just expose what uh, what black culture has really done for, for the music world. So again, I'm going to let Daniel get into that. Uh, but I also want to let you know that uh, Big Fat Snare Drum and Dream Symbols are doing a Black Lives Matter fundraiser. And you can donate in $5 increments. All the proceeds go to the Black Lives Matter movement. And if you win, you can get a huge prize pack from Big Fat Snare Drum. And you can also uh, win an ignition pack from Dream Symbol. So we're like hat, crash, ride symbol. Uh, and all you have to do, go to BigFatSnareDrum.com and you can donate again in increments of five. And if you win, you'll win some amazing prizes. But the best part is, all the proceeds go to support Black Lives Matter. So please go over and do that. And now I'm going to turn it over to my friend, Mr. Daniel Glass. Hey, everybody. It is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to the first episode of the Daniel Glass show on Drummer's Resource that has aired in... It's been a while. Um, I think a few months. And uh, part of the reason why I haven't been podcasting for a while as I've been, well, life has happened (laughs) in so many ways. Uh, I feel like I need to address what is happening in the world right now. And of course, the pandemic has knocked us all for a loop, especially us musicians and other freelancers, you know, who depended on live performances. We have not been able to perform. And what do we do? And how do we pivot? And how do we deal with it? And what is the world going to be like when we come back, when it, you know, finally does reopen in a meaningful way? And all of that has been very stressful. And it's been stressing me out probably as much as it's been stressing you all out. Um, I haven't been as active on social media, you know, as I as I want to be. But What's been going down now in the last week uh, since the since the killing of George Floyd by a police officer um, requires, I feel, I need to speak out and just say some things. Um, I think for all of us, it is a really gut-wrenching experience to watch what's happening in our country right now, and... Even those of you who listen, who are listeners who are not American, just seeing what is happening, um, and it's hard for me. You know, I'll be very honest. I'm uncomfortable discussing this. I try to keep my personal politics or my personal feelings about these kinds of issues out because I'm very excited about drums and music, and I want to talk about those things. But 
as a historian and someone who's looked at the history and evolution of drumming and music, you cannot separate um, the evolution of drumming and American popular music. And by American popular music, I mean everything from ragtime right on up to hip-hop today. You can't talk about that without talking about the uh, contribution of black musicians and the interaction of black and white in our society um, not only in a musical setting, but in a in a greater setting, um, it's just impossible. And you know, there's there's a really great saying, and I'm I'm going to get into the meat of of the because this this podcast is called Black Sounds Matter, which of course is kind of a riff on the the you know Black Lives Matter movement, which is which is happening and 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 um, is the topic of much conversation, obviously right now. Um, you know, there's black culture and the influence of black culture has really driven the world's uh, musical culture for 120 years. And yet, I've you know, as a historian who sees that, what you also learn over and over and over again is that systematically black contributions are minimized, ignored, uh, appropriated. Um, you know, people make a lot of money or have in the past off of black music. People love black music, um, but they are much less forthcoming with love for black people. And one of the great signs that I saw, you know, while watching the coverage of the protests these last few days, and and it's a phrase that I've heard before, is love black people as much as you love black culture. Which I think is really fantastic. So the Black Sounds Matter part of this, I will get to in a bit. Um, But I want to first put myself in an uncomfortable place, and maybe some of you listening, and I hope you don't just automatically turn it off. Um, You know, I want to talk about some of the reactions in our industry, the drum industry, um, both positive and negative to what's been happening. And, um, you know, first of all, on the positive side, I've been really heartened to see so many of the big companies taking a stand on this issue, saying, uh, decrying racism, um, saying they will not tolerate it within their own organization, um, lauding and celebrating their black artists, uh, lauding and celebrating the history and black contributions to our music and to our drumming today. And so, you know, I'm, I'm happy and heartened to see that, um, you know, there are some out there who say, well, you shouldn't be mixing your personal politics with your business. It's bad business. I'm not going to do business with you anymore as a result of you making a statement. Um, I don't agree with that personally. Uh, I think it is important that we make statements like this, that we actually put put it in writing or put it in words about how you feel about these subjects. I think there's a way to do it that is respectful and doesn't um, demean anybody else. It's a positive thing, right? So, you know, um, a lot of the bigger companies have made these statements, and I'm happy about that, and I've seen just so much positivity from drummers online supporting these kind of things. And, you know, I think... As musicians, obviously, you know, it's really important that we love each other and support each other. Drummers are really good at this. And I think music crosses color lines um, and it it helps us to understand people of a different race as just that, as people. And that's always the problem is that we, we tend to, uh, you know, talk about, we dehumanize people and talk about them based on their their looks, their characteristics, rather than as people. And once we get to know people of other races, other genders, other sexual preferences, all these kind of things, once you know people and these people are your friends, then all of that bias kind of drops away, for most people anyway. I do also really want to address a, a really dark, negative thing that has come up in our industry um, just in the last day. And I should I should mention that I'm making this podcast um, on 
Wednesday, June 3rd, uh, the riots, and I don't like to really say riots, there has been some rioting, but I would like to say mostly peaceful protesting uh, has been going on for the last few days. And uh, so what I'm speaking to right now is what happened. This podcast likely won't air until a few days from now, so more will probably have happened. But I can only speak to what's happened in the in the immediate. And of course, I'd like to speak in terms of larger issues. Uh, but there was one thing that happened in the drum industry. Um, there's a, a woman named Hillary Jones who uh, has been on the scene for a long time. She's a very good drummer. She's played with a lot of high-level artists. And she posted some pretty dark and very racist things uh, on, her, um, on her Facebook page. And it kind of has caused an uproar in the industry. She sort of pulled down the post. But um, she has been posting stuff very, very conservative uh, and really, in my opinion, very racist stuff. Obviously, you could be conservative without going as far as she did. I'm not, you know, the reason I even bring this up is that one of the things that upsets me about what happens in these moments is that people get hysterical about particulars. And, you know, in this case, it's very easy to pile on to someone like that. So a lot of people in the industry have been indignant and I'm defriending her and, you know, cancel culture and let's, you know, you know, get her companies to, to throw her off the roster and your career is over. And, you know, while I do agree there are consequences, I mean, she, she wrote, I stand by every word that I say. And she, um, you know, if you're going to, as a, someone of, you know, if you're going to step out and say those things on a public forum like Facebook or Instagram, then you better be prepared. Yes, you have freedom of speech, but, you know, um, there's a price to pay for your freedom of speech, which a lot of people somehow don't feel that that they should uh, uh, be subjected to. But um, my point in all this is much less about what she said than about... uh, the response. And a lot of people certainly were outraged. I uh, concur 100%. I do agree that, you know, what she said, she has a right to say it, but it is uh, abhorrent and should be universally rejected. And if the companies feel like they should remove her from their roster, they have every right to do that. Um, But a lot of people, their comments were disturbing to me. People calling her an effing bitch um, people saying, you know, she was in the military, people saying she just slept her way to where she got. Um, these are very dehumanizing things, um, you know, and I I think when you make comments like this, you come off as looking just just as ugly as she does in her original comments. And I would encourage everybody out there that, you know, Keep, you know, check yourself, I guess you could say. Check yourself. Be an honest person of integrity and don't jump on the bandwagon of hatred, you know, um, and and saying things that are just as dark as what it is you are upset about. In other words, be the change you would like to see, you know, in your own actions. So that's one thing. The second thing is that when something like this happens, the Hillary Jones thing, it is very easy for people to see the villain, you know, to to lionize this person that is such an obvious outlier, says such outrageous things. So, for example, you know, Dylan Roof, this kind of neo-Nazi dude who, uh, racist guy who went into the the AME church in North Carolina and killed nine people who were in the middle of worship. It's easy to, like, hate on that. It is much, much more difficult for us as individuals, and especially us, myself, as, as a white person, to take a deep look, you know, at what is happening right now in the world and to try to see if we are somehow contributing to this. Um, and that's the first point I just want to make before I jump into talking about maybe some historical examples of you know, that you may may not have put two and two together of, of where 
black music has has been super influential and why we need to um you know respect black people <laughs> as much as their culture or love black people as much as their culture or or welcome you know be more welcoming i guess but this idea of i want to speak to this idea of white privilege and this term it's a very weighted term and you know it sets off a lot of triggers for people um i know that it makes me uncomfortable to talk about it to think about it i think a lot of white people think well i'm not dylan roof or i don't have the same views as hillary jones so um i'm not a racist right it doesn't relate to me and you know, I've done a lot of thinking the last few days. Obviously, here I am going into a public forum, and I don't want to lecture anybody, but I want to share my own thoughts about this and hopefully get people to think um, about where they're at, and especially my fellow white people, you know? It is, it is, you know, the racism in our country not only today, but for hundreds of years, is is systemic. It exists in society. And just because you don't say anything racist or you don't, you know, put up a cross on somebody's lawn or just because you don't put up hateful words, it doesn't mean that we aren't contributing, that we all aren't contributing to the condition of racism that that leads to people like George Floyd being murdered by police. You know, you might say, well, you know, um, I, I, I never hold, held slaves. I, you know, I don't say these things. I don't consider myself to be a racist. Um, but this idea of white privilege is, you know, it, it means that we are, in essence, we have inherent advantages as white people, and we're comfortable with that. And so we don't want to lose, or we don't, it, it, it means that we don't have empathy for others because we don't experience what other people experience in the society, what black people experience, not only at the hands of law enforcement, but just being black every day, okay? Now, you might say, well, I don't have any privilege. I, I'm not rich. I didn't, I worked my ass off. I wasn't given anything. And I, I agree. And that's sort of, I, I used to kind of write this term off by saying the same things, but I don't think that is really what white privilege means. And I think it's easy for us to just be like, what do you mean white privilege? I'm not privileged. You know, I'm just a regular person who busts his ass. Why, why are you calling me? Why are you saying that I have to do with racists or, you know, this term white supremacy, which is being used more and more. And I think, doesn't mean Ku Klux Klan or neo-Nazi. It does in some cases. Obviously, there are those elements there. But it, what it means is that this society is designed for white people, to, for white people to benefit, and for others, you know, particularly black people, but other people of color, don't have that option to benefit. And I think that's what you know, if we're going to take the protests seriously, and I think we absolutely need to, and it's been really beautiful, by the way, to see that a lot of people, younger people, especially, but multi-generational, multi-racial, are getting this, that it's all of our problem, and that's why they are out there protesting as well. You know, and it's really easy, again, to say, well, people are looting, so everyone out there who's protesting is a hypocrite, or doesn't is just wants violence and anarchy and you know that is frustrating to me as well because we see this over and over and over again and you can't deny that what happened to George Floyd is rational on any level you know you can't and the fact that the same week the woman in Louisville you know unarmed or uh, on um plain clothes cops knocked down her door in the middle of the night in her own apartment and shot her to death. And it was a mistaken thing. And uh, nothing happened to those cops until, you know, it was brought out in, in the media that this, that this happened. And stand your ground law 
you know, her boyfriend who was with her had a gun, which is legal in Kentucky where this went down, and pulled his gun out and shot one of the cops. Now, he, there's no reason why the stand-to-ground law should not apply to him. So it's, I guess the idea is justice. Laws should apply equally if, if a cop does something wrong. And it's not that all cops are bad, but if a cop, a police officer, kills somebody in a flagrant and obvious way, they need to be held accountable. Now, I think that's what people are asking for. But I want to just, I want to try to stay away from the immediacy and talk a little bit more about my own personal response that hopefully it will maybe help some other people understand things the way I'm trying to understand them so I can be a better person in the world. I can try on my end to heal this very painful situation that we all have to see and that my friends who are black and people of color have to endure. I've seen several um, black musician friends of mine posting things on Facebook, very kind of similar to the Me Too movement. Somebody you've known for a long time posts something that you were surprised, where they said, I'm, you know, I'm black, and this has happened to me over and over again in my life as a musician, just trying to get to a gig. You know, there's a... um, my friend Vic Salazar, who everybody knows in this industry, who used to own Vic's Drum Shop, he's a dear, dear friend, and and he and he. When I go to Chicago, I usually see him, and he picks me up. He has this this van, you know, this cargo van. It's kind of a running joke because he he's carrying around giant amounts of gear all the time. Well, he posted three or four or five different uh, scenarios. Vic Salazar is Latino. He's, I think he's half Latino, but he's in fear all the time driving around in the streets of Chicago. I has been pulled over many, many times for no reason other than he was profiled. And he said he used to keep a copy of a Modern Drummer magazine that he was in so he could show it to the police, so he could prove who he was. And this is, I guess, what I mean by white privilege is that I, as a white person who never has to worry about that stuff, who, when I'm pulled over, I assume I'm going to get the benefit of the doubt, you know, from the police, or if somebody questions me, and I feel fully entitled to that right. Well, a dear, dear friend of mine, Vic, uh, he doesn't have that right, you know? And, and, And he's... It's not just that he has a chip on his shoulder. He listed in his Facebook post, go check him out, Vic Salazar... Um, you know, a bunch of instances where this happened. Another uh, friend, colleague from back in my L.A. days, African-American bass player, uh, spent some time in Austin and was talking about same kinds of things. He and a, a good uh, buddy drummer friend of mine who lives down there, both also African-American, were, you know, basically arrested because they were trying to unload their gear into a club and the only way they could get in there was to park, you know, to move some police barricades, which happened all the time, and the police were fine with it, but suddenly one day this one cop, you know, got a, a bug up his ass, and, you know, and they had, the irony is that they had just come from the, I guess, the Austin Music Awards, where their band had just won the award for, like, the best soul band of the year, you know, and here they're dehumanized and treated like nothing because the color of their skin. And that is, it makes me angry, makes me furious, you know? So that's when I start saying to myself, what can I do? And what I have to do is begin to see, it's not about beating myself up. It's not about saying I'm a bad person. It's not about saying I'm a racist. It's about taking responsibility and I think sticking up for people not allowing things that I see as racist to go by, um, to to go unanswered in my workplace. I mean, I think in general, jazz musicians, there's not a lot of racism there uh, because it is there is so much respect within jazz as for it as a black art form, as an art form that African Americans contributed an enormous amount to. Um, but, you know, it's out there. It is out there. And, and we all encounter it every day. And 
I want to, for, for us drummers, I want to create like a little analogy um, about this where that's a drum-related analogy that I experience in my life. And that is the, um, the position of the unique and odd position that I, I hold of being a left-handed drummer. Now, I will, before I even mention this, I'm going to say that I'm not in any way trying to intimate that my life as a left-handed drummer is as bad as African Americans who have to go through life being African American because obviously me being a lefty is a choice and it ain't that big of a deal. But on the other hand, it is a big deal and all of my left-handed brothers and sisters out there, drummer who set up their drum set left-handed, will know what I'm talking about. And I did an entire podcast about this um, a while back and I'll put the link in the show notes to that podcast. But when you decide you are going to set up your drums backwards, quote-unquote, and I hate that term, opposite, I like to call it, when you set up that way, you are a minority, and you are subjected to a lot of the um, hostility, um, insensitivity, and... uh, other things that most that you know right-handed drummers never ever have to deal with and i think it's a drag you know when you're a left-handed drummer there's no doubt about it you 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 know sitting in on other drummers drum sets or sitting in at clubs or sitting in on other people's gigs it's a hassle people don't like it i remember when i was in my school jazz band and i wanted to turn the drums around that was an issue you know, even if they let you do it, they let you know that they don't appreciate the uncomfortable position that you are putting them in by asking this. And, you know, on a on a greater level, um, it's affected me as a professional. It's affected me, um, you know, for example, when I moved to New York uh, and I wanted to start subbing on Broadway shows. As soon as I mentioned that I was a left-handed drummer, I there it was done. No matter how good I was no matter whatever, however else I qualified that statement by saying, hey, I'll learn your show on a right-handed drum set. No, I never got one, not not one call to be on anybody's sub list, you know. Um, that's frustrating. It feels like a glass ceiling. It feels like, you know, the Me Too movement where, where women say, um, no matter how much I succeed, uh, there's always, you know, this idea that I'm going to make less than my male counterparts. There's that glass ceiling. And it is discriminatory. Then there's the the offhanded comments, you know, come to a club. Oh, yeah, I didn't bring my, you know, the salmon says, I didn't bring my left-handed drum mics. Ha, ha, ha. You know, he may think he's being funny, or she, but you've heard that we, lefties, have heard that joke a thousand times. And so... The part that's most hurtful to me is, say, I have a, I have a, uh, a YouTube video where I do some big drum solo or a clinic or something like that, and a lot of the comments are, you know, right off the bat, oh, I, I can't watch this. I get a headache looking at this. What's, what's wrong with him? Uh, you know, I need a mirror to watch this. Um, just again, it's the same kind of thing of like, I'm not going to see you as a person who's worked your ass off to get where you are. I'm simply going to write you off, you know? Um, and I feel the need in everything that I do as an educator, you know, my century project video, I mentioned it in my shuffles course. I mentioned it. I feel like I have to mention at the beginning, Hey, I'm a left-handed drummer. Don't freak out and don't, turn this off or not watch this or not participate in this, um, it's going to look different. And, you know, and and actually what's really ironic is that when you watch a left-handed drummer on a video or as with my many, many Skype students across the screen, it actually is an advantage because it's a mirror image. And so rather than it being like an opposite thing, where both say I'm working with my left hand, they're working with their right hand, it's a, it's a mirror image and it's actually a in my opinion, a better way to learn. And so, again, I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this because it isn't that big of a deal. It hasn't stopped me from moving forward in my life and my career. Um, but it, the, the issue is the insensitivity of drummers. And why? Because, well, that's not my life. 
you know? And you could say that's right-handed drummer privilege, right? And so hopefully, you know, it's it's not my life, so why should I care about what a left-handed drummer goes through? Why should I be sensitive to somebody else and their issues of kind of discrimination they face? Why should I um, hold back from making a nasty comment or an insensitive comment about that? So again, it's an analogy that hopefully... I'm just making for drummers. Again, I'm not complaining and I'm not saying my station in life is anything like African-American people and what they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. But it is, it is, in essence, being a left-handed drummer, you are a discriminated against minority. And I don't think people have any idea what lefties go through. And so the podcast that I did on this topic, which I encourage you to go listen to, is called For Right-Handed Drummers Only. And... I named it that for two reasons. Number one, because I feel that um, it is designed for right-handed drummers to listen to, so they will understand the plight of their left-handed brethren and sisterin. Um, But it's also a signpost that we lefties see as we go down the highway of our drumming lives. We look up and we see a big sign that says, For right-handed drummers only. And that's the message we get. And so if we're going to be lefty, you know, unless you're in one band all the time, uh, if you're a freelancer, you know, in most circumstances, being a lefty is, you know, oh, a lefty. What do you mean? You know, as as if I'm an alien from Mars. So, I don't know, maybe I'm too uptight about it. Probably people say, hey, shut up. It's not a big deal. And it really isn't. I'm just... I want to use this as an an example, an analogy to talk about white privilege, and that if you are in the majority, you don't, it's easy for you not to understand that you are in a privileged position, right? So the first step, I think, is acknowledgement. And for me personally, I'm going to try really hard as a result of what is happening now, of how these protests have affected me, of how I see it has affected the people in our industry, that we don't just let this go and go back to business as usual. The world is in a messed up place right now. The economy is cratered. The environment is is headed for the point of no return. You know, we have all lost a lot of our gigs. There's a raging pandemic that is killing people. You know, I don't know of a moment where we shouldn't, if there isn't a better time for us to do some self-reflection to see how we can make this world a better place. I mean, it's certainly while we're all sitting around with a lot of extra time on our hands and we're watching on our TVs. And I mean, literally one of the protests I live on on the Upper West Side of New York, a very privileged neighborhood. I don't have to deal with a lot of issues, but they've got shops boarded up. And yesterday, like over a thousand people, you know, at least maybe more after the curfew was imposed, came walking up Broadway. I could see them from my from my window and it was very inspiring. And part of me really wants to go join them. And maybe I will, you know, Um, it's hard. I'm not so young anymore. And I, you know, feel like my contributions maybe w- would be better, but I don't know. You know, it's it's all our, our personal decision to make. What are we going to do? So now I'd like to change that. Assuming there are lots of people taking stock, and I hope everyone is taking stock and seeing how no matter who they are or what their life is like, how they can help to make this a better place and begin to tackle America's racial issues, racial divisiveness. Not what somebody else can do, not what a politician can do. What can we do? What can I do? That's the question I'm asking myself right now. And so the first thing is, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, let me ask that question of my black friends. And what one of the interesting things I've been seeing a bunch of posts from black people saying, look, don't ask me what you should do. I, it's not my job. I'm exhausted just having to, you know, be that left-handed drummer where people are making those remarks, where people are reacting to me in a certain way, where people are assuming things about me, where people are making derogatory and insensitive comments about me or my group, my minority group. So um, one person said, hey, you have this thing called Google. Why don't you punch in that and say, what can I do about my white privilege? You know, or just type that in. So I started doing some of that, and I'm starting to think along those lines. And um, I came across some really cool TED Talks 
um, by some African-American women, actually, uh, who had some good stuff to say. And it's, you know, I think a lot of white people just immediately go, oh, well, angry black person, they're just going to lecture me, they're going to tell me that I'm bad, and that I am the cause of all the problems in the world, and screw that. We got to get past that. And so this woman's name is Rachel Cargill. I'll put the link to her TED Talk. Interestingly, she did the TED Talk in Bend, Indiana, which is a community of 92% white people, and she was visibly nervous giving the talk. Not that she was going to be attacked, but I think it is. it takes a lot of courage to walk into a place where there are 92% white people and tell them, you know, coming to terms with racism's inertia, ancestral accountability, which is the title of the TED Talk. And, you know, to to tell people that they're responsible for what's going on when probably most of the people there are good liberal whites who feel like they've done a lot for racism. And they probably have, but we got to get deeper. We got to get deeper with this. So one of the solutions or one of the actions that Rachel Cargill said we should take as white people, three, three things, knowledge, empathy, and action. So I sort of was thinking about these three things, and I've talked a little bit about some of them already. Uh, knowledge meaning, um, you know, what she said is, unless you are aware, I wrote down some quotes, uh, unless you are aware of and combating the racism going on in your community, your workplace, your campus, or your home, then you are not solving the problem, right? And I think... Um, Angela Davis, who was a well-known black activist back in the 60s, um, who, who also was tied in very much to um, black culture, Nina Simone and jazz singers and jazz artists. Um, and I like that, you know, because music can be and is and has been a political thing. But Angela Davis said that, you know, it's not good enough just to be against racism unless you are anti-racism in your life and combating racism and learning about how racism is everywhere, how it is endemic in our society. Then, you know, you're not helping to solve the problem. And I know a lot of people probably don't want to hear that. It's not comfortable for me to hear. I grew up in a liberal family. I mean, my politics generally are liberal, although I don't bring them into my professional life that much. But I'm trying to be honest here. I'm trying to be real. And I need to take a look at my contribution to this. You know, and again, it's not about self-flagellation or hating yourself. It's about, I think, you know, and, well, we'll get to that with action. But she said, knowledge, empathy, and action. Knowledge plus empathy plus action. So empathy means Put yourself in someone else's shoes. And again, you know, I think it is really hard for people to do that, whether it's someone on the opposite side of the political spectrum, whether it's somebody who's protesting and you don't agree that protest is a good way to do it, whether it's someone like Colin Kaepernick, who was a very polarizing figure. Um, but before you like or hate automatically, Try to understand what that person is trying to do or say, you know. And it's interesting because a lot of people have said, well, protesting, that's, that's not the right way to handle this, right? Certainly not looting or destroying something, destroying property, that's bad. And if you do that, then you're diluting the cause, which I agree with to some extent. But... The same, very same people said when Colin Kaepernick took the knee, which is a peaceful form of protest, that he, that that was not appropriate. That, you know, well, you're making millions of dollars, you're an athlete, so how dare you uh, use your platform to speak about racial injustice? You know, unfortunately, the idea of making change has never been an easy process. And in no way am I advocating violence here. In no way am I advocating looting or destroying things randomly or anarchy or any of that shit. But if you are trying to affect change, 
you will be ignored unless you make the people who can, you know, provide that change, make them uncomfortable. I mean, so, you know, one other thing that Rachel Cargill said was we need to create an environment where the racists are uncomfortable. And I don't think, I think what she meant is, um, well, let me finish my point about empathy. <laughs> so empathy means trying to understand where, you know, people are coming from and not dehumanizing people, but trying to understand where they're coming from. Now, obviously, some people, once you make that, uh, you know, you try to find empathy with them and it's not happening, they're not coming from where you're coming from, fine. But at least try. And I think it's too easy to just say, I'm not racist, so therefore I don't need to even think about this. I don't need to understand why those people are out there or even try to. I'm just going to write it off and say, well, they're all thugs and they're all gangsters and they're all hoodlums and the whole thing is BS. And unfortunately, the powers that be, that's what they do every time. They focus on that as a way to not deal with the, you know, the death of African Americans at the hands of police you know, on, and, and we've seen so many egregious examples and we've seen so many cell phone videos, you know, and yes, there is issues on the other side and there's problems, you know, going the other way and not all black people are perfect or saints and, and, you know, it, it cuts both ways, but, you know, the, I, she, Rachel Cargill made one other, um, pronouncement, uh, which kind of blew me away. And she said that there are more black people in jail today than there were slaves in the South in 1850. And that's heavy, man, because it, it makes you feel like slavery may have ended, but the it just took on a new form, you know, a legalized form. And when you start looking at the details and the statistics of how black people are treated in instances where black people are treated, you know, white people are treated differently, not only in killing, but in terms of incarceration or punishment for crimes. You know, for example, and this is one other statement she made that really kind of knocked me out, which is that, you know, the jails, this mass incarceration, a lot of the people in there are black people who did not have the means to defend themselves in court and maybe copped a plea uh, and for marijuana offenses. But when white people, you know, decided finally to legalize marijuana, they're still sitting in jail, even though what they did and what they're being punished for, sometimes with really harsh mandatory sentences, um, was, you know, unjust. And so those people maybe should be let out of jail if their crime is marijuana conviction. And it isn't, again, I... I'm afraid that by saying these examples, I'm going to turn off a lot of people who say, well, justice is justice and, you know, you know, they shouldn't get special treatment and all this kind of stuff. Again, I want to try to couch all this in terms of my own feelings, my own feelings and how I have tried to grapple with this and, and see my own participation and what I see as right and as wrong. So empathy, putting yourself in someone's shoe. And finally, action. So this idea of you're not, you know, I'm trying to find the quote. I actually wrote it down, but I don't seem to have, don't seem to have it here. Um, if, if, if you are not confronting racism in your own community, your own workplace, your own campus, your own home, then you are not doing something about it. You know, it's not enough to just simply say, well, I don't use racial epithets, so therefore I don't, I'm not part of the problem. You know, this to me is the number one thing that has come home. And I'm nervous about it because I feel like once we all get busy again and once the pandemic goes away and once we get back to business, we're all just going to go back to like this blind eye. And I don't, I personally don't want to do that. Um, I don't want to do that. So, you know, I guess the biggest thing that we can do, and this is sort of what she said, is 
use your privilege as an insider, in other words, with other white people, to influence other white people and to hold ourselves accountable, to not turn a blind eye when somebody else says something that is or does something, even if it's subtle, because of course so much of racism, just as it is with sexism, is subtle. And, you know, so that's why I made that comment about the people that were, you know, attacking Hillary Jones by saying mean, hostile things about her gender uh, or using bad words about her to demean her as a human being. She is clearly got her position, and she's going to suffer the consequences. We don't need to lower ourselves. And so I'm calling out those people that use those kind of words with her. I don't think anybody is worthy of those kind of words, because that disturbed me reading those comments. Um, It's just a small example. We all see this around us all the time, and we see it with regard to race. We see it with regard to, you know, um, uh, gender, and and the Me Too movement, I think, was really powerful, again, for me, because it was like, wow, you know, what is what constitutes locker room talk and what constitutes misogyny? And what is a nudge and a wink with your buddy and what is truly adding to the harm that is being done to women that women have to deal with every day, right? So, again, empathy and action. Now, I'm not saying I'm some kind of crusader. I'm not. I don't feel comfortable about saying any of this, and I'm probably like 90% of the time, I'm going to continue to not say something when I know I should say something. Because I, the biggest thing is that we don't want to lose that privilege. I don't want to lose the things I've worked for. I've worked hard for them. So I'm uncomfortable saying this and I can't, I'm not being sanctimonious because I, as try my best as I can, I don't know if I'll be able to follow through as much as I'm asking everybody else to follow through. So I'm just saying I am like so many of my fellow white Americans, white musicians, you know, I'm, I'm just saying, all right, what can we do to be more accountable and what kind of action can we take? So, um, I'm going to leave it there for now. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to what I have to say. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to call this Black Sounds Matter Part 1 <laughs> and Black Sounds Matter Part 2, I'm going to dig into some historical you know, like I said, I'm going to talk about some historical issues um, in the evolution of our popular music and get back to the point being love black people as much as you love black culture. Because face it, we all grew up as drummers. You know, I have a, I'll talk more about this, but in my book, The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming, which by the way is about black culture of the 40s and 50s and the influence it had on so many styles today. That is what I talk about regarding shuffles. Um, We cannot separate these things. And if we love funk, then, you know, if you love hip hop, if you love rock and roll, if you love jazz, if you love rhythm and blues, if you love reggae, you know, then don't dissociate it from the people who created it and the struggle that they went through to do so. Um, And the hardship that they faced Today, it's very easy to sit back and say, well, Jay-Z's a millionaire, but there was always, you know, um, musicians, generations before him that paved the way. Someone like Louis Jordan, who influenced white and black people in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, um, who no one knows about today. But he, you know, if you, if you, if you look at James Brown and Ray Charles and, uh, um, B.B. King, uh, every black artist that came up in the 60s said that Louis Jordan was their number one influence. So I want to talk about Louis Jordan, you know? I want people to understand that that things have evolved, and it's good, they're getting better, but we have to understand that that this progress, the musical progress that we sort of just, yeah, funk, cool. That wasn't so cool. I mean, at one time, it was a style that people looked down upon that was called N-word music. That, you know, every one of those styles I mentioned before was degraded and was called the devil's music and everything else. And, 
eventually it becomes mainstream and eventually white people embrace it and begin to to make it a part of their own language. But they forget that there was a lot of pain and suffering and discrimination that that was involved with its birth at the beginning. And so we need to be respectful and we need to remember that, 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 that this culture that we have didn't just magically come from the sky. It came out of a history of conflict and pain and joy, you know, all these things mixed up into one. So I'm going to talk more about that in an, in an upcoming podcast, and I'm going to leave it here. And I hope that rather than, you know, offending people, which I hope I haven't done because I've tried to be honest and open, I hope that I can inspire you to do some self-reflection during this very difficult time. Turn off the Facebook, turn off the TV, you know, start Googling and educate yourself and don't be afraid. It doesn't mean that if you acknowledge that you have white privilege, that that you're somehow a bad person. It means that it's the first step to beginning to hopefully affecting change so that it's a better and more equitable world for everybody. And I don't know a single person on the planet that wouldn't want that, you know? So we all can be part of the change. All right. Thanks for listening. Love to everybody out there in this very tough time. I know we are all under a lot of stress and anxiety right now, and I I support those who are peacefully protesting in the streets, and I'm going to do what I continue to can do from my little, whatever little pulpit, bully pulpit I have here to try to um, move that forward in a positive, positive way. Peace and be well. Hey, it's Nick again, and I hope that you got some information out of that. I hope that that you learned something from Daniel. And also, I want to extend the invitation to anyone who would like to have a conversation about this, who would like to get to get deeper into this conversation. Uh, me as a as a white male here in the United States, I realize that one, I've been privileged in my life, but also that that I don't always understand everything that's going on outside of outside of my world or outside of my bubble and and I would like to and I want to know more and I, I'm here and I'm here to listen I'm here to learn and and I'm here to fight for what's right so if there is anyone out there who wants to have a conversation hit me up shoot me an email nick at drummersresource.com we can jump on the phone I really and I mean that sincerely I would love to have to have some conversations with all of you and uh just this community has has been amazing the way that it's been coming together and i want to i want to keep that going so again i'd love to have some conversations with you and we'll be doing part 2 of this which will be coming out next week so stick around for that and other than that just please stay safe out there keep fighting for what is right and don't let anyone tell you otherwise and remember we are all human Black Lives Matter, and go out there and do some good in the world. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.